It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We've got a lot of stuff to get through today. We're talking education in the second half of the show and how the politics around everything from charter schools to teacher strikes have changed over the last few years and how that may impact the 2020 Democratic primary. We also look at Brown versus Board 65 years later and some of the unintended consequences for African-American educators. We're going to stick around for all that. But first, let's do the numbers. No, not those numbers. We're talking candidates. 22, Governor Steve Bullock of Montana is running. Wait, no, it's 23. New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio is in. Who knows? Maybe we'll hit two dozen by the time Game of Thrones wraps up on Sunday night. We've talked with six candidates already on the show, but this candidate was one of the first to jump into the race. I am very glad I was one of the first people (laughs) to declare... I might not have felt that grateful in uh, February, March of 2018 because no one cared (laughs) about the 2020 race in 2018. But I'm very grateful that I've had more time to introduce myself to the American people and certainly very glad that I've now made the threshold to, to be included in the Democratic primary debates in June and July. That's Andrew Yang, founder of Venture for America, a fellowship program for recent college graduates. He announced his long shot campaign back in November of 2017. Well, I'm very open about the fact that I never intended to run for any political office, honestly, that uh, before 2016, I was the CEO and founder of a nonprofit organization called Venture for America that helped create several thousand jobs in the Midwest and the South. I'd gotten this sinking feeling that my work was like pouring water into a bathtub that had a giant hole ripped in the bottom. If you go to Detroit, That city used to have a population of 1.8 million. It's a manufacturing hub. Now it's down to 680,000 or so. So you go there with a small army of young entrepreneurs looking to rebuild, and you realize that uh, the problems are much bigger and deeper and nastier. And so after Donald Trump became president, I saw our country become very confused uh, where we were blaming immigrants somehow for things that immigrants have very little to do with. Uh, And to me, the central story was that we'd automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states that Donald Trump needed to win. And my work in technology uh, and my friends know that we're about to do the same thing to millions of retail workers, call center workers, fast food workers, truck drivers, and on and on. So uh, I realized I needed to help America understand what's happening to us and then advance meaningful solutions in the form of a freedom dividend. I'm also on the record saying if someone else were to reach the White House and adopt universal basic income and other policy goals, I'd be the first there clapping for them. I just want to solve the problems. So universal basic income, which you call the freedom dividend, that's uh, $12,000 a person. Can you explain how that would work and how much that would actually cost, how that would get paid for? Well, the great thing is this idea, though it seems very dramatic to us now in 2019, it has been with the country since our founding. Thomas Paine was for it in the beginning, called it the citizen's dividend. Martin Luther King championed it in 1967 in his book, Cast Our Community, and it's what he was fighting for when he was killed in 1968. It passed the U.S. House of Representatives twice in 1971. Milton Friedman and a thousand economists endorsed it. Was it Uh, for these same reasons, the idea that eventually technology is going to put us out of work, or was there another underpinning reason for a universal basic income? Obviously, Thomas Paine was not thinking about robots. Maybe he was. That would be he was impressive. Very, he was very, very prescient. Uh, 
In the 60s, Martin Luther King uh, and Milton Friedman and the rest actually were concerned with technology. Uh, that was actually a time of great technological innovation, and it was a concern. Um, we've had, you know, several shifts in our economy since the 60s and 70s, but now I see in the numbers that we're pushing many millions of Americans to the sidelines. It led to Donald Trump. Uh, and today, if you were to want to implement a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month, which we should 100% do, um, it would be pretty straightforward because we have this massive infrastructure already in place. Uh, almost half Americans are already receiving various transfers from the government. And so after I'm president in 2021, there will be bipartisan support for a dividend uh, and we can make it happen very, very quickly. So explain how this would work. If you are already getting entitlement or safety net government assistance, you're getting food assistance, Social Security, Medicare, is this coming on top of those? So this is uh, alongside it. But if you opt in, it's universal and it's optional. Obviously, you can't force money on people. <laughs> Most people... <laughs> Like would to take, take it, money. yeah, no. Yeah. And the great thing too is it reintegrate a lot of people in the economy because you know you need to get a means of payment and bank account generally and things like that. But it's opt in. But if you opt in, then you're choosing to forego benefits from certain cash and cash like programs. So if you're currently receiving food stamps, for example, um, you would look at it and say, "Hey, is what I'm getting right now better or worse than a thousand dollars in cash?" And then if it's worse, then you take the thousand dollars in cash, and then your current food stamps uh, no longer apply. But it sure still seems difficult to live on $12,000 a year without getting any other assistance. Oh, yeah. And, and many families would be very well served by not opting into the dividend if you're getting higher levels of benefits. But keep in mind, it's $1,000 per individual. So if you have two adults in a household, it's 24000 Maybe you have an 18-year-old child, and it's $36,000. So, uh, I mean, if everyone gets it, it actually adds up very quickly. And even people who are well off. So no matter how much or how little you're making— you qualify for this. Universal means universal. Yeah, that's right. And, and this is taken uh, from the successful application of a dividend in Alaska, which has had it for almost 40 years. Everyone gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. And it doesn't matter if you're the richest Alaskan or the poorest Alaskan, you get the dividend. And that helps make it universally popular. It's not a rich to poor transfer, so there's no you're getting it, I'm not. It destigmatizes it and makes it a genuine right. And it also avoids having to have um, reporting or monitoring requirements where people say, my circumstances changed, or you have some motivation to underreport your income. We've been hearing a lot about worries of automation pushing people out of work, as you point out. Since the 60s, I'm sure it's been even before then, right, that ultimately, as a society, we're going to be so technically efficient that we're not going to need workers. At the same time, the pushback to that is, yes, but every technology brings more jobs. People were thinking this at the Industrial Revolution era, right? We were going to put so many people out of work. But that it may take a little time, but that automation and AI are going to create as many jobs as they are taking away, but just in different areas. Yeah, so I, I wrote a book on this subject. I, I've gone into the facts and figures and the history, but I'll, I'll just suggest a few things. Um, of course, there'll be new jobs that get created by all these new technologies. The problem is that these new jobs will be for different people in different places with different skills than the jobs that are lost. There are three and a half million truck drivers in this country. The average truck driver is a a 49-year-old man with a high school education making about $46,000 a year. My friends in California are working on trucks that can drive themselves. 
Now, after you get self-driving trucks on the road in five to 10 years, will you need new logistics managers and hardware specialists uh, and, you know, sensor uh, uh, mechanics? Yes. Will they be the same people as the three and a half million that are driving the trucks right now or the seven million that work in truck stops, motels, and diners that no longer have customers because the truckers don't stop there anymore? Of course not. They'll be very, very different people. Uh, And I studied economics in college. According to economic theory, if you were to automate away 4 million manufacturing jobs in the Midwest and the South, those workers would get retrained, reskilled, find new jobs, and all would be well. But in real life, when you dig into what happened to the manufacturing workers in the Midwest, almost half of them left the workforce and never worked again. And of that group, about half filed for disability. And then we saw surges in drug overdoses and suicides in those communities to a point where now our life expectancy overall has declined for three years. And the success rate of federally funded retraining programs, according to independent studies, were between 0 and 15%. If you use the first industrial revolution as a template, there were mass riots that killed dozens of Americans and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. And we implemented universal high school in 1911 as a response. So even if you use that as your template, you'd expect this to be very, very rough, particularly when you consider that MIT, McKinsey, and Bain all project that this fourth industrial revolution will displace workers at two to three times the rate and magnitude of that industrial revolution. We're in the greatest economic transformation in the history of the world. It has brought us Donald Trump, and we need to get our heads up and start acting. So if you get $12,000 but you still don't have a full-time job, how are you going to still make it in this economy? So the great thing is that the $12,000 a year is uh, across everyone. So if you are in a community of 100,000 adults, that's uh, an additional $120 million flowing through your community. And that money is going to get spent on car repairs and tutoring services and local nonprofits and religious organizations. Uh, Like it ends up supercharging all these neighborhood economies. So that's one of the the problems with thinking about it's like, oh, if I get $1,000, sure, but if everyone gets $1,000, that's actually going to be a massive boon. It's going to grow the consumer economy by 10 to 12%. It's going to create 2 million new jobs in our communities because that's where the money is going to go. But it's going to then sort of supercharge the gig economy, an idea that people are going to be doing two or three or four things on top of getting a monthly check. Well, and so 94% of the new jobs that have been created in this economy since 2005 have been gig, temporary, or contractor jobs. Um, so we need to move towards universal health care, Medicare for all, and that's one of the flagship pillars of my platform. We need to start essentially waking up to the fact that it's not the 70s anymore. People aren't going to have lifetime jobs with the same company for years. Um, everyone's doing a gig job. We need to get health care uh, to people independent of their employment. And then we have to start acknowledging the sort of work that my wife does. My wife's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic, and that gets valued at zero. We know women do the vast majority of the unrecognized and uncompensated work in society. So people who are like, let's raise the minimum wage, I get it. I'm for raising the minimum wage too, but that does not affect millions of people who are doing caregiving work and nurturing work and parenting work around the country. You've talked about the Freedom Dividend, Medicare for All, universal health care. I've looked at your website. There are a lot of things. That's a, I'm for a lot of a, things. You're for a lot true. of things. A lot of things. Everything from the NCAA paying athletes to battling opioid addiction to preventing airlines from booting people off their flights. But this all costs a lot of money. 
I mean, how on earth can we have this many things that the government's doing? Well, some of those things don't actually cost money. No. Getting the airline <laughs> thing, no. And NCAA, no. But I'm talking about Medicare for all. I'm talking about, the, obviously, the number one thing being the basic income. But how on earth can we possibly raise enough money? Can the government have enough money to do this? This is the greatest farce that's being played on the American people. Like, our economy is up to $20 trillion, up $5 trillion in the last 12 years. And we're somehow running around being like, where are we going to get the money? I mean, all you have to do is look uh, at Amazon. Amazon's a trillion-dollar company. How much did they pay in taxes last year? Zero. Meanwhile, Amazon is leading to the closure of 30% of American malls and Main Street stores. And the most common job in the U.S. is still being a retail clerk. So think about that equation. Your stores and malls close, retail workers lose their jobs, and the American public gets zero. So the way we change all this is we join every other advanced economy and have a value-added tax, which would then give the American public a sliver of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad. And because our economy is so vast at $20 trillion, even a mild value-added tax gets you over $800 billion in new revenue. Now, after we pass this dividend, the money does not disappear. It grows our local economies, and it creates hundreds of billions in new revenue. This is the trickle-up economy from people and families and communities up. All we have to do is believe in ourselves and make it happen. If he were elected, Yang says he would implement a universal basic income, meaning everyone would get $1,000 a month, and he would pay for it with a value-added tax on tech companies like Amazon. But many see a value-added tax as regressive, arguing it's consumers who will bear the brunt of the new tax system as businesses pass those taxes on to their customers. I asked him how this would be fair to most consumers. Well, it would work out for the bottom 94% of the population. And unless you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, you wind up ahead. Um, But this is, again, something that every other advanced economy has already done in the world. So you have to ask yourself, like, why has everyone done it except for the U.S.? And the answer is that our government has been overrun by corporate interests and Amazon likes paying zero taxes. That's the only reason we haven't done it. I want to talk about the the sliver of the internet. There are some folks in there that have embraced you, and they come from everything from white nationalists to others who have values that I that, know that, that you not, have. Yeah, that and I, I know hold. you have denounced them and said, please don't support me. I don't, I don't want your help. But I'm wondering if there's another way in which you can address what you think is going on here. Why is this attraction happening for you? And how can you talk to folks out there and assure them that, look, just because somebody like Richard Spencer says that he likes me, I want to tell you why I don't like what he's doing. How can you do that? I think most Americans are very smart. They can see who I am. They can see what my campaign's about. And they know that I can't control every hateful individual who decides to write a blog post that's positive about me. I'm the son of immigrants. I believe that Immigrants make our country stronger and more dynamic. Most Americans have no confusion as to who I am. And that just because someone reprehensible supports me, you know, is not to them something that they they need to get that concerned about. you, though? Why why do you think they're attaching themselves to you and doing the memes and everything as opposed to any other candidate in this race? Well, I think I'm talking about issues that actually affect Americans day to day and they get it. One thing that someone said to me in Iowa, someone said to me, you're what I hoped for when I voted for Donald Trump. There are many, many people who supported Donald Trump who now feel deeply disillusioned and disappointed. 
And so where are they going to go? If you're not going to support Donald Trump a second time, you're kind of casting about. And so some of them, I believe, have landed on my candidacy because they believe I'm trying to address the same problems in a different way. I see the dislocation in these communities. I worked in the Midwest and the South for seven years. Donald Trump sold turn the clock back, bring back your jobs, build a wall, which was obviously garbage and nonsense. And a lot of people are recognizing that. They were like, hey, that actually did not help or did not work, did not happen. And then Andrew Yang showing up saying, I get it. The economy has transformed underneath your feet. It has devastated your way of life. We should own that and we should try and see to it that everyone has at least some tiny slice of the innovation and progress going on. You feel like you have a stake in the future. And some people find that very compelling. We're doing a show this week on education. Again, go to your website. You have a very detailed plan about tackling student loan debt. Can you sum that up for us? It's reprehensible what we've done to our young people. Why has college gotten two and a half times more expensive and has not gotten two and a half times better? <laughs> you know, we're up to $1.5 trillion in uh, student loan debt, up from less than $100 billion in 1999. Think about that, up 15-fold in 20 years. Uh, so we need to just make a choice and say, do we want our young people living in their parents' basements, deferring any of their hopes, uh, and paying off loans for years? Or do we want them going out there, buying homes, starting businesses, starting families? So if we choose the latter, we should forgive a very, very significant chunk of these student loans. And that's what I would do as president. I would also bring the interest rate to zero so that, that government's not profiting. But we have to stop treating college like it's the end-all, be-all for all young Americans. The underemployment rate for recent college graduates is 44%. Only 6% of American high school students are in technical or vocational or apprenticeship tracks. In Germany, that's 59%. And there are tens of millions of those trade jobs that are going unfilled right now because Americans don't have the skills for them. And it's because high school kids get told, go to college or bust, go to college or you're a loser, and trade schools are for second-rate students and individuals. A lot of those jobs are very, very lucrative. You can make six figures as an electrician or plumber in many, many places. And those jobs are much harder to automate. It is much easier for software to get rid of an accounting or bookkeeping or insurance agent or journalist job, unfortunately, for journalists. I have mm-hmm. a plan for trying to fix that, too. Okay. But it's much harder to automate away a plumbing job or an electrician job. So we need to try and focus our young people on the opportunities that will be here for them for years to come. Given what we know about automation and what the future is going to look like, Are you surprised that more candidates haven't embraced a basic income in some form or another? Well, let's change it. Uh, You know, the plan is to make it so that every candidate has to embrace a universal basic income as a necessary step towards preparing our country for the 21st century economy. And they're not bold enough to do it yet. But as it becomes more and more popular, they will feel like, okay, this is going to be good for my campaign. Let's embrace it. It's inevitable. We have to do it. And the sooner we do it, the stronger our families and communities will be. And I'm enjoying making that case because I can guarantee you before this campaign's over, I'm going to have a lot of company in the universal basic income camp. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you, Amy. It's been a lot of fun.